0: What we're talking about this morning is how to live during the judgment and a little bit more about the shaking. James chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 12. So speak ye, and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Is there an appropriate way to speak, an appropriate way to live for those that are going to be judged? There is, and it's described in the next verse. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy. And mercy rejoices against judgment. If there's at least one point about an appropriate way to live during the judgment, is that the judgment is a time to show mercy. During the time of judgment, you want to show mercy because he that doesn't show mercy will receive no mercy in the judgment. Then during the judgment is a particular time when the devil would be working to cause people to live and act in an unmerciful way. I want to study with you this morning a little bit about about God's mercy. I think we don't understand it nearly as well as we ought. Let me review with you some facts, and then actually let me do an advertisement first. There were some very important questions asked last night in the question and answer period. We were instructed before that to give brief answers, but you all asked involved questions <laughs> that deserve developed and involved answers. You can find at least answers to some of those at a canvassing.org website. That's www.canvassing.org. Especially that question about military service. There's a fairly thorough development of that theme from the Bible. Even the questions about jewelry and about dress There are, those ideas are there too. Anyway, I recommend it. That's the advertisement. Canvassing, as in call portering, C-A-N-V-A-S-S-I-N-G dot O-R-G. Yesterday, the few of you that were in the seminar I was giving in the later afternoon heard me speak about Numbers chapter 16 and Numbers 14 and Numbers 20. And all I want to bring out about those again here is that God's people were in apostasy in Numbers 14, rebelling against the faithfulness of Joshua and Caleb. They were in rebellion in Numbers 16 following Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They were in rebellion in Numbers 20 wanting to kill Moses because of a lack of water. We didn't go into Numbers 21, but they were in rebellion there, too. That's where the story of the snakes are. And immediately after that rebellion in Numbers 14, 16, 20, 21, in chapter 22, you have the interesting story beginning of Balaam and Balak. Turn with me in your Bibles to Micah. Micah chapter 6. Micah 6 is a famous chapter, but it seems that only about one verse in the chapter is famous. That was verse 8, but we're going to look at verse 4 and verse 5. Micah chapter 6 and reading verse 4 and verse 5. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab consulted, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. If you want to understand the righteousness of the Lord, what story does God recommend you study? The story of Balaam and Balak. If you want to understand the Lord, your righteousness, God recommends that you remember the story of Balaam and Balak and that you go there if you want to understand how the righteousness of the Lord works. One of the most incredible statements in the Bible is in that story. Turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers twenty three. I told you the story was in Numbers twenty two. Well, it's a story that spans several chapters. Numbers 23 is in the middle of it. I probably didn't write down the verse number. Yeah, I did. Numbers 23 and verse 21. After Balak had asked Balaam to curse the people, Balaam made his best efforts, it looks like, to curse the people, but he couldn't do it. And Balaam, speaking under inspiration, says in verse 21 about Israel, God hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. First of all, was there a king in Israel at this time? Who's the king that was among them? The king of kings was with his people. And did God see in them perversity? Did he behold in them iniquity? After Numbers 14, 16, 20, and 21, millions of unconverted people rebellious at every turn of the way. And what does God say about them when speaking to their enemies? He hath not seen perverseness in Israel. It's incredible. It's not comprehensible to me. But who recommended we go to this story? And for what were we to come here? To understand the righteousness of the Lord. It differs sharply from the way we relate to the iniquity in God's people. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah 29 and verse 20. It says, for the terrible one is brought to naught or to nothing, and the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off. I would take warning there. I would not want to be in the class that is watching for iniquity. Maybe it's fair to say also I wouldn't want to be in the class that treats the abominations or sins in the church as if they don't exist and tries to put them under a rug. I can say I wouldn't want to be there. I'd want to be sad about what's going on in our church. I don't think we understand this side of the coin as well as we do the other. Verse 21 that make a man an offender for a word. Have you ever said anything that as soon as you'd said it, you'd realize you didn't quite mean what you said? And other things that you did mean it until about a day later, and then you wished you hadn't said it and you didn't mean it anymore? Do you think people that are speaking for God do the same thing? They do. And it is a mistake to make a man an offender for a word. To be watching for iniquity. To lay a snare for him that reproves in the gate. The person who's rebuking sin doesn't always do it just right. And if you're watching, you can find you can trip him up and catch a way he did it that wasn't just the very way that he should have done it. And maybe it's legitimately true that shame on him, he should have done it better shame on you for trying to catch him doing it wrong. And turn aside the just for a thing of not. Men who are justified don't live just exactly right. And to treat someone as if they are no longer God's people or as if they're on the wrong side or to push them aside because they do something small and wrong, Small, at least, that's how God describes it in this verse, is a mistake. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 20. It appears that at some point, Jeremiah decided to resign from being a prophet. You can understand how he was feeling because it seemed like the people were not paying him any attention. At one point, Jeremiah, even when they came to him and solemnly promised they would do whatever he said, as soon as he said it, they said they weren't going to do it. And in verse 9 of this chapter, he decides he's not going to speak anymore. But it didn't last very long. It says near the end of the verse that I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. That is, he could not stop speaking. Why, verse 10, For I heard the defaming of many. Fear on every side. Report, say they, and we will report it. This phrase, report, say they, and we will report it, is quoted many times by Ellen White. (laughs) Never once in the context of Jeremiah 20. Just applying it to whatever context she was in. Because the Spirit has been around for a long time and is in a lot of different contexts. You should watch out for it. It really bothered the prophet Jeremiah and it ought to bother us. What is the Spirit? It's the Spirit of report, say they, and we will report it. You hear about the iniquity over there, you're kind of glad to hear it because it gives you a chance to say something over here and to spread it around. All my familiars watched for my halting. Does this remind you of what you read in Isaiah? About those that watch for iniquity? What are they watching for in Jeremiah? Watching for him to do something not quite right. And do you suppose if they watched long enough, they might have found something? Saying, peradventure he will be enticed, and we, will, we shall prevail against him, and we shall take a revenge on him. The way people get revenge on prophets is by looking for a little mistake that they make. When I was speaking at Advent Hope a number of months ago, I gave a sermon there about how people persecute the prophets. It was simply based on Matthew, what Jesus said. How do they persecute the prophets and the sermon them out? They speak all manner of evil against them falsely. If you believed, for example, that Ellen White was a true prophet, and you read that verse, you would have to expect that those that persecute her would be speaking how much evil? All manner. And would it be legitimate evil? You would just have to expect that, wouldn't you? Because that's the way they persecute prophets according to the Bible. If I could expand on this idea for just a minute, not the idea about Ellen White, but about speaking about other people, it would be to enforce in your minds the ninth commandment. The one that says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. When you hear a report about something evil that was said or done, and you pass it on, Unless you know of a certainty by two or three witnesses that it was so, you violate that ninth commandment by risking it. I don't mean that... I mean, even if you're right, you violate the ninth commandment by risking it. How can I explain how I understand it? You're taking the chance of speaking falsely about your brother. And even if you happen to be speaking right, just that type of risk is a violation of the spirit of the command. I had an experience in Oklahoma City some years ago. It was at a, uh, not Promise Keepers, but the other thing, Women of Faith, one of those large conventions. And I was with some people that were um, provided with magazines by Restoration International. You've seen those tens and tens of thousands of magazines passed out at those kind of meetings. Well, I was one of the volunteers there passing out meetings. I mean, passing out magazines. <laughs> to the right of me was a, a gentleman quite a bit older than me, which applies to almost all gentlemen. And um, while we were passing out magazines, he began to talk about his experience inside the Adventist church. And then he began to talk about how pastors today of the Adventist church don't appreciate the great controversy and our message. How pastors today are opposing it. That didn't sit well with me. Because I work with several pastors every year that I've never met before been doing that for 16 years, going to new churches, working with new pastors over and over and over and over again, and working with I don't know how many scores of them. I've only found one that didn't like the great controversy. And the rest were excited to know that the literature was going out. And I thought I probably ought to tell the guy what I was thinking, and so I began to share with him that I thought he was violating the ninth commandment by his generality. What he was saying was misrepresenting his brethren. And the look on his face was like he wasn't buying it. When the man to our left, you know, we were all three strangers to each other. Said, as he was passing out the magazines, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist minister. If I could come back to how we started, it's that we're living in the judgment and that those who show no mercy will receive no mercy. That in the judgment is a special time to show mercy. And if we want to understand the righteousness of the Lord, we're recommended to a certain story that really is quite incredible. I'm certain, though I can't find it in Scripture. That you didn't have the mass conversion of a million and a half people between Numbers 21 and Numbers 22. Did that make sense to you, what I just said? Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13. And, of course, that would be before Numbers 14 and 16 and 20 and 21. John 13, and we're looking at verse 36. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, you canst not follow me now but you will follow me afterwards. I just want you to see that that was a very kind thing for Jesus to say. Jesus spoke to Peter as if he was going to make it. Well, it's not very long after this that Jesus says something different. Verse 37, Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. All I want you to see is that before Jesus predicted the fall of Peter, he predicted that Peter would make it in the end. Did that have anything to do with the salvation of Peter? Why, it did. If you have one of these little ribbons that most Bibles come with, put it here because we're cutting right back to this spot. But turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, and we're looking down at verse 31. It's the same story. Matthew 26 and verse 31. Then said Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Verse 32, But after I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. What I want you to know is that that verse 32 was a very kind thing for Jesus to say. That in predicting that the apostles would would abandon him that night, in the next breath he predicted that they would be gathered back together to him soon. Verse 33. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, that this night before the cock crow you shall deny me thrice. But we know from what we read in John that Jesus said something nice to Peter too in this story. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. It's the same story. Luke 22, and we're going to begin reading in verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. When we talk about the shaking, the fan is in the hand of Jesus. But is there anyone else that's interested in doing shaking? It is the devil who would like to shake. And there's a difference between the two. Who would the devil like to shake out? Why, the faithful. Verse 32, But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Listen, and when you are converted, strengthen thy brethren. That was very kind of Jesus to say that. In fact, in a couple of verses, he's going to predict the fall of Peter. But before that, he predicted that Peter would be thoroughly converted. Verse 33. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee, both to prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before that you thrice deny that you knowest me. Turn back with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, that's where that ribbon might be. We read the last few verses of the chapter. Where we began reading, the question was about where is Jesus going? That was the question being asked. And the last verse we read is verse 38. We're going to read it again. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. And in case you might doubt that it's the same conversation, verse 5, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not where you goest, and how can we know the way? If I could just tell you what we've observed reading the same story in three different Gospels. It's that Jesus is very kind. It's that in speaking to people who are weak and fallible and say and do the wrong things, that He speaks to them as if they're going to make it, which is quite different than we're inclined to speak to those same people. That though He even knew about their fall and let them know their danger, He didn't let them know their danger without speaking to them hope as if he expected that in the end it was going to work out for them. And that that very expression is a type of mercy that works in the hearts of people. It is a way to live during the time of judgment. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation. Chapter 14. Revelation 14 and looking at verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. One appropriate way to live during the judgment is mercifully. Another way is with an eye to the glory of God. To be speaking and acting in a way that would represent God's character well. That's what it means to glorify him. But these aren't two separate ideas. What is it that best represents God's character? Yes, it is living in a merciful way. The way that Jesus lived at the very end of his life towards Peter. I got ahead of myself yesterday when I talked about Amos 9 verse 9. But I'm going to say it again here, just in case a fourth of you or a third of you weren't there. Maybe it wouldn't hurt to look at it again. Turn your Bibles to Amos, chapter 9. Amos, chapter 9, and looking at verse 9. It says, for lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. It's that idea that in the shaking, God is concerned for every one of the least of these his brethren. Was Jesus aware that we aren't concerned in the same way? He specifically warned us about offending the least of these, our brethren. Turn us in your Bibles to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we're looking at verse 19, one of the most oft-violated commands in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 19. It says, against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. And if I could just expand on this passage a little, it doesn't say two or three reporters. It's a different thing. Not because you heard two or three people you trust say that it happened somewhere. But if two or three people that saw it happen, which is entirely different. Does the passage say, spread the rumor if you have two or three witnesses? No, but what it specifically says is don't even receive it if you don't. That is, you and I are forbidden to entertain the thought that it might be true. And we ought to rebuke it as gossip. It is not this way, that God has placed elders on a pedestal of immunity from criticism. What he has worked to do is to give them immunity from false gossip. Because it's not only prophets of whom people speak all manner of evil against them falsely. And you might not have any idea how many false things you have spread because you heard them from people that you trusted. Well, maybe they were sincere, but they were spreading it because they heard it from people they trusted. But you'd only have to go down the line so far to find out that cursed is the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm, whose heart departeth from the Lord. When I say that they don't have immunity from criticism... It's because of the next verse. Them that sin rebuke before all, the others also may fear. Elders are at the same time given immunity from false gossip and held especially accountable for true sin. Witnessed by the church and attested by several witnesses. The Bible gives an example of both these verses in the New Testament with Peter and Paul. Paul, for example, says, this is in Romans 3. He says that some people reported that he said, let us do good that evil may come. Well, what was the kind of thing Paul wasn't in the habit of saying? That where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. But not even did he mean that let us do evil that good may come. But the way people hear and remember is really messed up. So that this kind of rumor can start very sincerely. Someone can hear the very thing that Paul says, remember it different than the way he said it, and repeat it and turn it into a lie. And in fact, that's what happened, because it says in that same verse, after Paul says that, we ought to look at it, just so you can see it. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 3. Romans 3, and we're looking at verse 8. It says, and not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Did Paul consider that these people were worthy of damnation? I only mean that's the last half of the verse. Whose damnation is just? Did you notice you have the two or three witnesses here? Some people said they heard it themselves, and two or three others affirmed that it was so. Was it so? Were there two or three witnesses? There were. But was it so? It wasn't. And so I don't want you to get the idea of what you, from First Timothy that if there are two or three witnesses, it's necessarily so. Just if there aren't, you can't even figure that it might be. But what about the other end, them that sin rebuked before all? That's Peter. You remember the story from Galatians 2. He sinned before the church and Paul rebuked him to his face because he was, quote, to be blamed. God does not place ministers with immunity to criticism. But he places around them an immunity from rumors. So that what they deal with is their real sin that's really in their life, that everyone around them has seen, that this is the thing that's coming up, and that they're not tempted to self-defense because of all these twisted sort of true things or mostly false things that people hear and are saying about them. All right. I've shared the whole thought and everything I had to share this morning. And it didn't take an hour. I'm going to review the thoughts. What time is it now? And I'm going to give you an option after that to ask a question or two if you'd like to. If no one does, we'll just close early. I don't mind that. What we've said so far is that we should speak and do as those that will be judged by the perfect law of liberty. Certainly, that does mean obeying the law. That was the verse before, but we never read it. But it's related to showing mercy. Because one point of that law is, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Which means, in practicality, you should not risk spreading rumors that are not founded. And you shouldn't assume they're well-founded just because you hear two or three people spread it. It means that you should be thinking in an entirely different way about people. If you meet someone as faulty and messed up as Peter, you wouldn't want to make him an offender for a word. You wouldn't want to watch for his his falling because you certainly would find it. You wouldn't want to write him off for a thing of nothing. Instead, you would want to speak to him and of him as if in the end he was going to make it. And if you would, it would increase the chance that he would. Jesus modeled that way of relating to people. It's merciful. The righteousness of the Lord is beyond me in comprehension. I really feel kind of nervous when I tell the story of Balaam and Balak. It doesn't match my ideas, other things that I know are true from other parts of the Bible. But it is true because it's also in the Bible. that I want to be careful how I relate to the people, how I speak of God's people and how I think of them. It looks in the story of Balaam like if you curse the people, the curse comes back on yourself. And that if you bless the people, the blessing comes back on yourself. And that studying that story is a good thing to do if you want to understand the righteousness of the Lord. Does anyone have a question or two that you might like to bring up before we close? Turn something in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. It wasn't really a question, it was a comment. It was a comment that being merciful isn't just something to do in the judgment. It was something valid to do before the judgment began. Of course, for us, that's all one and the same thing, because we were born in the judgment, we're going to die in the judgment. But anyway, it is the truth. And I just want to show it to you somewhere. Romans chapter 2, and looking at verse 1. It says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whosoever you are that judgest, for wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judges dost the same things. That last part of that verse is the part that's kind of troubling. Because the people that condemn people for committing adultery aren't necessarily adulterers. Do you follow do you understand what I just said? But there's a reason why the thing has an S on it, the things. It's because it's referring to the last few verses of Romans chapter 1, where you have a long list of the things. They include fornication and wickedness and covetousness and maliciousness and envy and murder. That's the kind of things a certain class do. Maybe you get a different class with the word debate. Then back to the first class with deceit. Maybe to the second class with malignity. Sticking firm, firmly with the second class, you have whisperers and backbiters. Going to the first class, haters of God. Maybe both classes, despiteful and proud. Boasters, inventors of evil things and disobedient to parents. Yeah, It's certainly true that anyone who is acting in an unmerciful way towards his brethren is at least getting the whisperer's part wrong did you follow what I just said and while he might be condemning people for other things in the list he's doing something in the same list and in this list what it says at the end of it is that they which do such things are worthy of death which is the truth and it condemns those also that have pleasure in them that do them which while it's not part of the talk this morning is a good reason not to watch television Yeah, that's true. Yes. There are certain things that people are... Yes, the question that's being asked is, here you have a number of elders, namely youth pastors in particular, who are promoting entertainment-based worship. And how does all this apply to people who are destroying other people by the things that they're doing? And if I could answer that briefly with a couple principles, one would be that there's a difference between things that men are ashamed of and things that men are not ashamed of. In other words, if you accuse me of being a liar, I'm not going to appreciate that. But if you accuse me of quoting the Bible too much, I'm not going to mind. If we talk about the things that men are openly promoting, are they ashamed of those things? You know they're not. And you can fight against false promotion of doctrines without accusing people of bad motives or of evil hearts or of anything like that. You can accuse them of being wrong. Maybe accuse is a wrong word, but let me show you what I mean. I think I did it already, some other talk. But it was Romans 16, verse 17 and 18. Romans 16, verse 17 and verse 18 authorizes you to mark certain teachers for their fighting against God's truth. That is to make note of who they are and it authorizes you to do something about it, namely to avoid them. Romans 16, verse 17 and 18. It says, Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and... Avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus, but their own belly, who by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. I'm going to close and answer that question just a little bit more with a story and be done. It's a story about Roger Williams in the 16th century. There was a Massachusetts Bay colony that hated Quakers. Massachusetts Bay Colony hated Quakers so badly that they began by doing all kinds of minor annoyances and the Quakers would keep doing what they did. Finally, they began to banish them, but they would come right back. So they banished them with pain and they kept coming back. They came to the point where they banished them with a law that they'd be stripped from the waist up, whether men or women, and beaten with a whip as they were marched through city after city of the colony and then taken to the border and let go there. But you know what the Quakers did? They came back. It's very much like human nature when people have religious convictions. Many of these youth pastors you speak of very much believe that this is the way to win the young people. They're wrong, but they believe it. Roger Williams had a different theory altogether. He allowed the Quakers in his area, but he preached against them. He preached the truth. And the truth very much undermined Quakerism. Quakerism is a Christian version of Hinduism. I mean, it's the inner light idea. That's how you get... And uh, Roger Williams preached about it. And you know, the Quakers abandoned Rhode Island. It's not that they had to, but they weren't able to accomplish what they wanted when the truth was all over the place. At the General Youth Conference last year, we had shepherd's rod people who were there, passing out literature. I'm just gonna to suggest to those of you who might work with GYC in the future, that if you would organize a meeting to, to show the mistakes about the shepherd's rod and invite those shepherd's rod people to come to the meeting and say, anyone's welcome to take their stuff if they want to, we're gonna talk about it here and then, that would be much more devastating to Shepherd's Rod theology than saying, don't pick up those leaflets, don't read them, which never have, ever has worked. <laughs> this is not a thorough answer to your question. I might not have one. It's the best that I can do. I think we're out of time. I think we are.
1: an that we can before all before all.
0: Let's kneel for a closing prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we are dependent on You. I ask that You would take the words that we've read this morning from Scripture, and that You would use Your Spirit to impress their true import on us, that You would save us from the sin of careless criticism, that You would preserve us from the violation of the Ninth Commandment. That you would teach us how not to treasure up wrath against the day of wrath. But how to let your mercy live inside of us. Use that mercy to lead others to repentance. As your mercy has done for us. I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.